this is our fourth sermon, our fourth, fourth in the series, looking at the matter of ambition. Something that seems contrary to the calling of a Christian. But in this series, I have taken the position that God made us to be ambitious. That part of being made in the image of God and bearing His image is that we are to have ambition. But on some level, this seems really counterintuitive. Last week, I mentioned near the end of the sermon that there are two great dangers, uh, well, there are two issues that we have to face. One is a danger, the other one is not. When it comes to the matter of calling, and that is covetousness, in which we want to go beyond what God has intended. And the other, which is the antidote to it, is contentment. But think a moment. If you were given the opportunity, or if you had the responsibility to hire someone to accomplish uh, a particular task, and let's say it's a big task, and to do it at a high level, and you had a choice between two people, two individuals. One was marked by covetousness, and the other one was marked by contentment. Who would you choose? Well, the Christian part of us would say, well, of course I'd pick the person who was content. And yet, deep down, I think we believe that a person who is driven by covetousness would be aggressive, would be assertive, would be enterprising in doing the job. Whereas the person who was marked by contentment, we wouldn't want to say they were driven by contentment, that doesn't make sense, but they would be more easily satisfied with his or her efforts and probably wouldn't work as hard as the covetous person. Oh, we know that the covetous person would probably be a pain to work with, probably a real jerk, but he or she would get the job done. Whereas the contented person, for all his or her niceness, would probably not do as much as we might have hoped for. And here we see the tension in the matter of ambition for the Christian. I've spent more than two sermons in this series looking at the issue of calling. As I am convinced, it is foundational to the matter of ambition. If we have a sense that someone has calling from the Creator who has given us the gifts and the inclinations for each calling, then there is a right reason for ambition in seeking to accomplish the task that God has called us to do. And yet there is this ambivalence about ambition. A word or idea that has, in the words of one author, mostly hovered outside respectability. As we've done in other areas, I mentioned this last week, I think it would be helpful for us to consider ambition in terms of creation, fall, and redemption. In other words, what was ambition like in creation when God first made the world? When God intended, or what God intended to be a perfect world, what God intended for those made in his image? And then what happened to ambition due to the fall, when Adam and Eve rebelled against the Creator and his intents, when the Creator cast them from his presence, now when the human race has sought to live on its own apart from the Creator. And then what is ambition in a world that is being redeemed? When Jesus came into the world, when Jesus showed us what it meant to be human, what it means to be human, when those who follow Jesus seek to live as God intends. Let's begin with creation. And almost immediately we have to acknowledge that we are not told that much about the state of affairs prior to the fall. 
what we have about creation is contained in the first two chapters of Genesis, whereas the rest of Scripture is about the fallen world and how God, through Jesus Christ, is redeeming that world. What we can do is attempt to reconstruct what God intended in the creation, that is, prior to the fall, based in part on the nature of rebellion. What does humanity rebel against? Well, that must be what God intended. Based in part on what we see in the person of Jesus, and based in part on the calling of those who are God's people. And I think if we take these three things together, they can be summarized, what God intended for ambition, in one word, and that word would be glory. Glory is about radiance and splendor. It exists to be seen and recognized. At its core, it is about inherent value that is recognizable to others. It draws attention. The value of glory attracts us as human beings because we are made in the image of God. I take it as a given that creation has the purpose of revealing the glory of God. That is creation's purpose. Even in a fallen world, this is true. Listen, if you would, as I read uh, the first half of Psalm 19. How clearly the sky reveals God's glory. How plainly it shows what he has done. Each day it announces it to the following day. Each night repeats it to the next. No speech or words are used. No sound is heard. Yet their message goes out to all the world and is heard to the ends of the earth. God made a home in the sky for the sun. It comes out in the morning like a happy bridegroom, like an athlete eager to run a race. It starts at one end of the sky and goes across to the other. Nothing can hide from its heat. Creation was created in part to reveal the glory of God. And that goes for those who are made in the image of God. We are part of creation and our purpose is to reveal the glory of God. That is why we were created. And in Eden, prior to the fall, this was the purpose of man and woman, Adam and Eve. They had the ambition to reveal the glory of God. This is what was of primary importance to them. There are three things I think we should see about the nature of ambition. First of all, it perceives the value of something. Secondly, it prizes that because it perceives it has value, therefore it prizes it. And then thirdly, it pursues it because it has perceived that it has value and has prized it because it has value, therefore it pursues it. This is where we find the effort and the willingness to do whatever is necessary to accomplish or to achieve a particular goal. One is content one is not content to be lackadaisical, that is, lacking vitality and purpose, because what we pursue is seen as having value and therefore it is prized. This is true of the true glory of the Creator. It is to be prized. It is to be pursued. This is what ambition is to be about. This is what God created humanity for. But it is interesting, because we are made in the image of God, there is glory in humanity as well. We hear this in Psalm 8, also written by David. It speaks of the glory of God and of man. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. 
From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so in a in creation, we see that ambition is about glory, God's glory, but there is also glory found in those who are made in his image. But now we come to the fall, and we see now that ambition is twisted, and we see it twisted in the temptation of Eve. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And here in verse 6, we now see all three aspects of ambition twisted. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Perceived, prized and pursued and ultimately eaten. You will note that none of these had to do with the Creator. Rather than being directed to the glory of the Creator, it was perceived, prized, and pursued as directed to the glory of Adam and Eve, of humans. And this is generally now how we think of ambition. The glory that a fallen person perceives, prizes, and pursues tends to be about reputation, about esteem, about standing, about honor, about being valued and recognized by others. We should never forget that ultimately in a fallen world, ambition is about us. I mentioned that when we began this series that the word ambition is found seven times in the New Testament, at least in the NIV, the New International Version. Twice it is used positively in Romans 15, we looked at this, and in 1 Thessalonians 4. The five other times we don't find it simply by itself, but it is always accompanied by the word selfish, selfish ambition. Five times. Interestingly enough, two of those five times are found in James chapter 3. And if you have your Bibles open to James 3, I'll read verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Verse 14. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, and James, in NIV it has it in quotation marks, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, 
than peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. We went through James several years ago. We saw that there are three parts of this section. First of all, what is the mark of wisdom? And then in verses 15 and 16, earthly wisdom. And then 17 and 18, heavenly wisdom. As I said, we've gone through it. But I don't want to retrace what we've looked at before. But one gets a sense that James is making a strong contrast here. That on the one side you have the good life, deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And on the other side there is bitter envy and selfish ambition. If you look through this passage and think a moment, what is the contrast? What is the difference between these two lists? Between the good life and selfish ambition? If you look at it, on the one side you have concern for others. And on the other you have concern for oneself. The negative that James presents us is selfish, self-centered, overly concerned for one's own position, one's rights, one's dignity. But how is one to know if one is doing right or being selfish? If one is being wise and understanding or being selfish? In the rest of the section, James contrasts two kinds of wisdom. And in doing so, he tells us of their origin, of their characteristics, and of their results. I would encourage you to revisit this passage if you get a chance. John Chrysostom, who lived in the 4th century, he was the Archbishop of Constantinople, said, Men who are in love with applause have their spirits starved not only when they are blamed offhand, but even when they fail to be constantly praised. I think it's important for us to be reminded that ambition is not wrong in and of itself. We see it in creation. We will see it in a moment in redemption. It is in the category of fall where we are that we tend to see it in its twisted forms. The answer is not to say, well, let's get rid of all ambition since it is all wrong, but rather we should see ambition as God intended and as we see it in Jesus Christ. One could make the case that ambition doesn't always start out wrong, but somewhere along the line it goes bad. And how it goes bad is when suddenly it begins to veer back toward me. And it is about my glory and what I want. I read from John chapter 12 last week, and you may have your Bibles open there right now. I found uh, this week in revisiting it uh, that the ESV uses glory in the place of praise. So if you look at verses 42 and 43, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, that is, in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Verse 43, For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. One of the ironies of living in a fallen world is that when we are driven by selfish ambition, we seek to become great, we in fact become much smaller than what God intended. Jonathan Edwards, if you bear with me, wrote, The ruin that the fall brought upon the soul of man consists very much in his losing the nobler and more benevolent principles of his nature and falling wholly under the power and government of self-love. In other words, we've fallen from where God had us to something much, much lower. 
Before and as God created him, he was exalted and noble, generous. But now he is debased and ignoble and selfish. Immediately upon the fall, the mind of man shrank from its primitive greatness and expandedness to an exceeding smallness and contractedness. The irony of ambition in the fallen world is we seek to become great, but we in fact become small. I found Dave Harvey's book, Rescuing Ambition, to be very helpful in this area in the matter of ambition. And he has in one of his chapters a section entitled, Forget Alexander, I'm Dave the Great. And he writes some of the titles that he has found in his own campaign for personal glory. Uh, and I'm leaning heavily on his material here. Um, would point out that while he is speaking of himself, it sounds painfully familiar. I would also remind you that the author's name is Dave. We have a Dave among us, but he's talking about himself here. Okay. So here are some of the titles he's come up with. Dave the Occasionally Great. This Dave has his moments. He even surprises himself sometimes. The problem is he can't string it together. The self-focused, self-absorbed Dave keeps showing up as well. Then there's Dave the Great in his own mind. This Dave has great thoughts about Dave. He has wonderful plans for Dave. He can think of better ways to do something. Just ask him. He'll tell you. Or don't even ask him. He'll tell you anyway. Then there's Dave the potentially great. He has the tools. He just needs to put it all together. But he fears success and the responsibility that comes with it. Better to have potential than to risk anything with success. Then there's Dave the formerly great. This Dave has been there and done that. He'll talk about the way things were back in the day. Everything has gone downhill since. Well, since everything was great. Then there's Dave the comparatively great. Always better than average. He hates to lose, loves to win. He knows what it takes just to stay a little bit ahead of average, ahead of the curve. Then there's Dave that tomorrow I'll be great. This Dave has great intentions. He's just about to do something. He can feel it. He just needs to get a little more rested, a little more organized, a little more motivated, and then he will be great. Then there's Dave the if only great. This Dave really wants to be great, but just can't catch a break. He's constantly being thwarted in his endeavors by the decisions, the weaknesses and failures of others. If it weren't for others, he would be great. And then there's Dave, the I'd be, great, I'd be great if others would just notice. This Dave would sure appreciate it if people would notice what he has done. And then lastly, the I'll be great if it kills me. This Dave is so motivated for greatness that he's fixated on his goals. He pushes hard and won't take no for an answer. Failure is not an option. With all these campaigns for greatness, most if all will not, most, most if not all of them will in fact end in despair. And this despair can lead to depression and other things in other areas. Well, we don't want that, and so we come up with an alternative to make success more likely. We lower the standard of greatness to be somewhere that we can 
reasonably achieve without super effort required. Again, to refer to Dave uh, Harvey's book, Live a Holy Life? Impossible. How about a balanced and reasonably moral one? Done. Love God and others wholeheartedly? Forget it. How about a head nod to God and tolerance toward others? Done. Obey God's word as the rule of my life? Too restrictive. How about leaping through it to find words that make me feel better about myself? Done. Our failure to achieve greatness is far more dangerous than we might think. Because in failing to achieve that, we then lower the bar. Because what God intends for us, we find to be too restrictive or too demanding. And therefore, he who made us in our image, he who made us in his image, he who made us to be ambitious, is disregarded and we become the gods of our own lives. Embedded in us is the desire to seek our own glory. This comes from the fall. To install ourselves as Lord of all. To be worshipped. To have fame and glory. But ironically, in seeking and pursuing our own glory, we fall tragically short of the greatness of the glory of God. You may recall what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we could sum up ambition in a fallen world, we would say our ambition leads us to a dangerous place. We place ourselves in the path of the wrath of God. And this is usually what we think of when we think of ambition, and therefore we want nothing to do with it. But we find ambition in creation, we find it in the fall, we find it in redemption. I've argued that ambition is all about glory. Either we seek to bring glory to the Creator, as God intended in creation, or we seek glory for ourselves. We've been doing this since Adam and Eve sinned. This is a result of sin. It's selfish by definition. It's all about me. But what about redemption? How can ambition be redeemed? This will be the subject of sermons in the weeks to come. But as with all discussions about redemption, we must begin with Jesus of Nazareth. While this may seem to be a mere formality, something we have to do if you're going to talk about redemption, you have to talk about Jesus I would argue that it's much more than that, particularly in the area of ambition. Remember, ambition is about glory. In John chapter 1, in the prologue, as John writes about the incarnation, in the beginning was the Word, so on, we read the following. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews put it this way, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That is God's glory, his honor, his esteem, his perfection, his incomprehensible value are embodied in flesh and blood in the person of Jesus. 
This is where God's glory gathers. To love the glory of God means that we are to love the person of Jesus. To love Jesus means that we value him more than anything else. This is a defining characteristic of Christian conversion. We love the Savior and want to live for his glory. But there's something else we need to consider. While Jesus is the glory of God, he also came to bring glory to God. And the pinnacle of God's glory is seen in the person and the work of Jesus. It is from him that we learn the nature of redeemed ambition. Jesus came to bring glory to the Father, as a human being, to bring glory to the Father. And so we learn from him. Three areas that I have you think about in the coming week. Jesus rescues the motive of ambition. Jesus rescues the obedience of ambition. And he rescues the joy of ambition. Let's talk about these briefly. The motive of ambition. Apart from the work of God's grace in our lives, our quest for glory, even for God's glory, oftentimes ends up in a struggle for approval. So that even if we are doing something for God's glory, we look around to see if people, in fact, are approving. Or if perhaps we don't do that, we look to God to see if somehow we might win his favor. In the person of Jesus, our search for approval is over. In Jesus, we are redeemed. We are God's people. He loves us. Therefore, our ambition, our drive for God's glory, should not be struck or paralyzed by our concern about whether or not God will love us or what others think. Instead of wondering what others think or wondering if we can win God's favor, We cannot. It has been freely given to us. We can strike out boldly with ambition to walk in our callings. Where has God put me? What is it that God has gifted me to do? I can strike out with ambition because I don't care what other people think and I know that God loves me unconditionally. Instead of fearing that we will fall short of our goals, we will, or that God somehow will be displeased with us for our imperfections, We can and should be ambitious. Our ambition can be and should be in the process of being redeemed. And our motives we see in the person of Jesus. Secondly, the ambition of, I'm sorry, the obedience of ambition. In Jesus we see perfect obedience. But in addition to that, we see something else that we often face. Obedience that is misunderstood. People don't understand why we're doing what we're doing. Obedience that is ignored or obedience that is rejected. In Jesus, we see perfect obedience. In our lives, there's also the issue of obedience based on a standard that we have set. A standard of greatness that we can reliably attain. No, let's not lower the bar. Let's leave the bar where it is. But know that in Jesus, we find obedience perfect obedience and he is the one who has redeemed us we are in Christ if we have put our faith in him and he is the one who by the power of the spirit enables us empowers us to be obedient to be ambitiously obedient it was Martin Luther who said uh, sin greatly confess greatly 
In other words, you just have to go for it. You're, if you live in fear that you might do something wrong, you're not going to do anything. Let's just, it is a given. We will do things wrong. But we have been forgiven. We are loved. And by the grace of God, we are to be ambitiously obedient. And thirdly, in Jesus, we see the joy of ambition. In our attempts to make ourselves great, selfish ambition makes us smaller, much smaller than God intended. In Jesus, we find the way to experience true joy in ambition. That is, we are no longer to live ambitiously for approval. God loves us. We are to live ambitiously because we have approval. If we live to gain approval, we will be disillusioned. If we live ambitiously because we have approval, this should inspire us to do what God calls us to do. Do you want to enjoy life as God intended? Then you should be ambitious. There's so much more to be said about this. And the Lord willing, in the weeks to come, we will continue to look at this. But I want to return to where I started today. In the matter of being covetous versus being content. I don't know if you have struggled in this area as I have. I find oftentimes that things that I know to be wrong motivate me far more deeply than being content. Because I feel like if I'm content, I'm going to sit down and do nothing. And so again, if given the choice between hiring two persons, one who is driven by covetousness and the other one who is content, I tell you what, this covetous person is looking better and better because they have the drive. They have the get up and go because they're driven by their covetousness. Whereas this person's content and just wish they had a little more get up and go. I found a wonderful quote from Oz Guinness. On the one hand, we are told by a myriad of Christian speakers that we should be thinking about our legacy, the clear knowledge of our contribution after our time on earth. On the other hand, we are told by countless other Christians that ambition is always wrong, synonymous with egotism. It is selfish and quite unchristian. Both of these positions are wrong. In fact, they are the opposite way around. For as followers of Jesus, we can and should be ambitious. But we should never be concerned with our legacies. And that, I think, is the key. I can be ambitious and content at the same time. I can be content because even if things don't work out the way I wanted them to, God knows all things. I'm not worried about a legacy. I'm not worried about getting my name in the news. I'm not worried about other people recognizing or approving of what I've done. I am content to be ambitious and to do what God has called me to do. On the other hand, the person who is driven by covetousness is thinking about legacy. They want to be recognized. They want approval. 
and they despair when they do not get what they want. A child of God is content to be ambitious and to leave the results to God. Leave the results to God. As God's people, we are to be ambitious. This is what God made us for. Sin has really twisted that, and we are, through the work of the Spirit, slowly untwisting the damage that has been done. The answer is not to get rid of ambition. The answer is not to sit and do nothing. The answer is, by the grace of God, in the example of Jesus Christ, to be ambitious and to do what God has called us to do. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are fallen human beings who are being redeemed. In a real sense, it seems that we have one foot in each world, one in a fallen world and the other in a redeemed world. A part of us thinks of ambition in negative terms, as we see it around us, as we see it in a way that comes naturally to us, to be about me, about myself, what I want, my glory. And yet there is a part of us that wants to bring glory to you, that wants to do the things that please you. Help us to see in Jesus Christ your glory but also to see in him someone who sought to bring glory to your name, that he is our example. We cannot help but breathe the air of the culture that we live in. This is where we are. This is where you have put us. By your grace, may we come to see a redeemed view of ambition and live lives filled with that ambition. And may we be content to leave the results to you. I thank you for this time that we could spend together today, worshiping you, resting in your presence. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We again pray for Dan and Lonnie there in the Philippines. You would watch over them, guide them. Pray that things would go well. We also pray for Nick, who's visiting with us in the Masterwork Festival. You would guide them and direct them. Prosper what they do. Again, we thank you that we could meet together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.